Um, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming, king, the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, yeah, fig tree in leaf, he, would, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Amen. Okay, well, we are going to spend the rest of our time together thinking about um, the, the readings that we've had this morning from Mark chapter 11. And it would be helpful to have that open in front of you over the next few minutes. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. And as we do that, it's worth just noting that we're gearing up for yet another royal event uh, over the course of the next few months. We had the Platinum Jubilee last summer, and there was the Royal Funeral last September. Uh, and, and this May, the 6th of May, will be the coronation of King Charles. And it's going to be a big deal by all accounts. Most local councils across the UK have declared it a public holiday, I think. And there'll be various community events and galas happening over the course of the weekend of the coronation, as well as the coronation ceremony itself. But whilst there will doubtless be a great deal of excitement and build-up in the media coverage, and probably quite a lot of coronation chicken over the course of that one weekend, there is also 
a slight question mark around all of it. Because there is still a little bit of dubiety about whether Charles will be as influential and as well loved and revered as his mother was. Whether you would think of yourself as being a royalist or not, we are at a bit of a crossroads in some ways when it comes to the role of the royal family in the UK. And so in a strange kind of way, what will make or break Charles's tenure as king is what people make of him. Whether people respect him and accept him as monarch as much as they have done his mother. And that means that what we think of King Charles really matters. Matters most of all to King Charles. Now in this series in Mark's Gospel that we started uh, last uh, October, we are now on our way towards a coronation. Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem this morning, and as he does so, he comes as God's long-promised king. That's going to be clear from Mark chapter 11. And so one of the big questions we'll be wrestling with is what we make of him, how we relate to God's king, because what each one of us does with Jesus really, really matters. But the reason it matters is not because what I think of him or or what you think of him will have any bearing on whether he is king or not, ultimately, like it does with King Charles, for example. Because in Mark 11, King Jesus is definitively God's king, whether we like it or not. And so the reason what we think of Jesus matters is not because it has a bearing on his status as king, but because it has a bearing on our status in his kingdom. See, we'll see this morning that what we make of Jesus will be the difference between one day meeting him in salvation or instead one day meeting him in judgment. That's the big idea we're going to be thinking about over the next few minutes. Let's think about it a bit more closely now. Firstly, um, Jesus, next slide please if that's okay. Jesus, God's humble king, has come in triumph, verses 1 to 11. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, we've spent a few months working our way through Mark's gospel on Sunday mornings. And as we've done that, some of you might have noticed that Mark is quite a fast-paced account. He often moves us quite quickly from one thing to another thing to another thing, which means that it's quite an engaging account to read. But it also means that the start of chapter 11 might come as a bit of a surprise. Because rather than launching the story forwards, things seem to slow down a bit. At least over the first few verses. I wonder if you noticed that from verses 1 to 6. We get a lot of detail, don't we? We're given Jesus' travel itinerary for his journey into Jerusalem. There's a lot of back and forth and collecting a donkey for him to ride on. And given that Mark is is often quite so succinct and quite so fast-paced in what he tells us, well, it begs the question, why bother telling us about the transport arrangements? Why slow down at all? Well, it happens for two reasons, I think. And the first reason is to show us that Jesus is in absolute control. We get a sense of that from the little prophecy and prophecy fulfillment in verses 2 and 4. I wonder if you spotted those. Verse 2, Jesus says to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
And as we read on, verse 4, they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. None of what is happening is haphazard. Jesus knows what's about to happen before it's even happened. That's one reason for being given so much detail to show us that Jesus is in control. It's not an accident what is about to happen. And the second reason for all of the detail is the mode of transport itself. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt or a donkey. And that might strike you again as a slightly odd detail to include. But the reason it's included is that this isn't the first time in the Bible we hear about someone riding into Jerusalem on a colt. In Zechariah, one of the the prophets of the Old Testament, we read this prophecy. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived in the flesh. Zechariah writes this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God's king is going to come to God's people, says Zechariah, riding on a colt. And so the reason Mark slows us down and gives us so much detail is to make sure we spot that. Jesus is being identified as being that king. It's being highlighted, double underlined, in case we should miss it. And as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, that point seems to get a bit louder. The people who line the streets are shouting about him. And what they shout suggests they know that something big is going on. Hosanna, they shout, verse 9. That's a word that just means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they continue. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The people know that something big is happening. They know it has something to do with God's kingdom and even with God's coming king. That's why they mention King David. But, although there are some really clear signs as to who Jesus is, well, what isn't clear is that the people understand all of the implications of that. See, I wonder if you noticed how this triumphal entry ends. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It all seems to, to end with a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? Jesus goes to the temple, he has a look around, and then he leaves for the night. And despite all the fanfare, the whole scene seems to come to nothing. The crowd seems to disperse almost as quickly as it had assembled. All of which leaves us with two main ideas at the end of verse 11. Firstly, we're left with the idea that the people don't know quite what to do with Jesus yet. I mean, they're delighted to see him. They clearly know he's a big deal. But when it comes to actually having him in the city, well, things seem to fizzle out a bit. But nonetheless, secondly, we're left the idea that Jesus definitely is God's coming king. Irrespective of what people make of him, it's clear that he is God's king and that he knows himself to be as much. He prophesies to that effect. 
And I do wonder if that might be a helpful corrective to the way some of us might sometimes think about Jesus. The fact that he is God's king, he is his long-promised Christ, no matter what people make of him. Because that's pretty much the opposite of how leadership tends to work in our culture, isn't it? Charles' kingship will stand or fall depending on whether people are up for him being king or not. Prime ministers and first ministers' leadership will stand or fall depending on whether people vote for them or not. But you see, Jesus' claim to being king isn't dependent on us giving him kudos. He is God's king whether we acknowledge him or not. Now, what difference does that make? Well, if you're a Christian, I wonder if you've ever been told by someone, perhaps a friend or a colleague, that they would just love to have your faith. But Christianity, well, it just isn't for them. It's not their thing. They have other hobbies and activities that they're more interested in. And the implication is that Jesus only matters to people who think he matters. It's fine for Jesus to call the shots in the lives of people like you who choose to follow him. But he doesn't have any say over me because I choose not to follow him. But that isn't how it works at all. No, Jesus is unequivocally God's king. And he does have a claim on your life and on my life has the right to tell us how to respond to him, what to do, how we should live, regardless of whether we sign up to it or not. And actually, as the story unfolds in Mark 11, we start to see that what we make of Jesus doesn't change his status as king. Rather, what we make of Jesus changes our status in his kingdom. Let's see that under our next heading this morning. Jesus, God's humble king, has come in judgment, verses 12 to 21. Now, there are certain people in the world who have a knack for gardening, uh, who seem to know how to keep plants alive and uh, thriving, and unfortunately, I'm definitively not one of them. Our house is a bit of a houseplant graveyard, actually. Uh, My parents-in-law came to stay with us a few weeks ago, and uh, not long after they had arrived, my father-in-law, who's a very keen gardener himself, he came through to the kitchen where I was standing with a pot uh, with an orchid in it that had been in our spare room. Uh, Only it wasn't an orchid. I mean, it had been at one time. I'm sure it had flowers on it and everything, but not anymore. Now it was clearly an ex-orchid. It was it was a stick, a brown weathered stick, plonked in a pot of soil. And no matter how you looked at it, it was categorically dead. Which, by the way, it should give you pause if you ever consider giving us a house plant. We'd very much welcome it, but you are sending a lamb to the slaughter. But I want you to see in Mark 11... Things aren't quite as clear as they were for my father-in-law. It's the day after Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Jesus and his followers are leaving Bethany where they'd spent that night. And from a bit of a distance, Jesus sees a fig tree. And he notices, verse 12, that it's nice and leafy. It looks like it's healthy, like it's thriving. Only when he gets a bit closer... Well, things aren't quite as they might have appeared. Verse 13, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
Now, on the face of it, this might seem like a radical overreaction from Jesus. Perhaps even him being a bit unreasonable about a tree not having any fruit on it. But it is just worth noticing, firstly, he doesn't make this pronouncement in, in a fit of rage. He isn't angry that he's not got breakfast for the morning. Nor even is the fig tree in season for fruit. Mark doesn't hide that at all. That was quite clear. And so the point in this instant with the, uh, the, the fig tree is not that the fig tree is necessarily doing anything wrong in and of itself. No, the point is that it looks leafy from a distance, but it isn't bearing fruit. And though the fig tree itself isn't culpable for its fruitlessness, well, the same can't be said for the people the tree represents. What do I mean by the people the tree represents? Well, we know that the tree does represent something other than itself. And we know that for two reasons. Firstly, because in the Old Testament, a fig tree was used by a number of different prophets as a metaphor for God's people. Bible authors have previous for using a fig tree as that picture. That's the first reason. And secondly, we know that the fig tree is being used as a picture of something other than itself. Because even though Jesus curses the fig tree, verse 14... It isn't until verse 20 that the fig tree is left looking like an orchid that spent some time in our spare room. It is dead and withered. And sandwiched between the curse and the withered tree comes the explanation of what's really going on. Just follow that with me. Verse 15, Jesus goes back to the Jewish temple courts the morning after he'd first ventured there. And his reaction to the fig tree seems quite strong. Well, just notice what happens when he gets to the temple. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus quite literally turns the tables He drives out the traders and the money changers, overturns their stalls. And his his response seems to be aimed at pretty much everyone in the temple, not only market traders in the outer court. That's how this passage is often understood as, as being a rebuke against carrying out commercial activities in a place of worship. But it seems to me that it's a bit wider than that. He stops people from carrying anything through the temple. It's a very strong reaction, and it's aimed at most people who seem to be in the temple. But it's a strong reaction for a reason. And to explain that reason, Jesus quotes to us from two Old Testament prophecies. Firstly, Isaiah 56, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who wrote 700 years or so before Jesus' arrival in the flesh. And he was writing here about the true purpose of God's temple. That it was meant to be a place of true and sincere and heartfelt worship of God. And not only for Jews, but actually for the whole world. And Jesus is so angered in Mark 11, because as he looked at the temple closely, well, that just wasn't the case. It wasn't a place of true and sincere worship of God. But that isn't all. There's a second quote, verse 17. 
but you have made it a den of robbers. Again, that's a quote from the Old Testament, again, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born in the flesh. And while that quote from Isaiah was all about the real purpose of the temple, this second quote, this prophecy, which was by Jeremiah, was a warning. It was a warning to people who thought that just because they were worshipping in the temple, they were safe as far as God was concerned. That as long as they did stuff that kind of looked religious, they had a spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card with God. They could do what they liked as long as they also came to the temple from time to time. That was a safe place for them, much like a den would be for robbers where they might hide. And in response to that mindset in Jeremiah, God said, no, that isn't right at all. That kind of lifeless and heartless and godless religion is worthless in his eyes. What really matters is what you make of me, said God. And in Mark 11, well, the problem is that having been watching the people's behavior in the temple, that's exactly the heart set that he'd seen. Lots of activity. The temple buzzing with with lots of stuff happening, even religious looking stuff happening. But at its heart is false and faithless religion. It is religion without Jesus. And actually, we see that it's religion without Jesus from how the religious leaders respond to him, don't we? Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Temple worship would be far easier if we could only keep God's king out of it, as far as they were concerned. All of which sets the tone as we return to that fig tree, verse 21, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi Luke, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Can you see the cursing and the withering of this tree? A tree that looked like it was healthy, but wasn't doing what perhaps it should, is a picture of God's judgment on the dead, Jesusless religion he'd seen in the temple. The kind of religion that might look vibrant and active, but doesn't want God and doesn't want his king, King Jesus. Now, we thought under our first heading that Jesus' kingship doesn't depend on what we make of him ultimately, whether we are on board with him being king or not. He is our king nonetheless. But it is important to be clear that it does still matter what we make of him. Because as I've said, what's at stake in whether we recognize Jesus as king is not his status as king ultimately. It's our status in his kingdom. And that means that you can be as religious looking as you like. You might even be actively involved in serving in a local church. You might look spiritually green and leafy. But without humbly accepting God's king, bowing the knee before him and his authority over you, well, then you're in serious trouble, says Jesus. And I wonder if that might be a word for anyone here this morning. It is quite common to subconsciously weigh our spiritual lives against a kind of equation that religious activity equals spiritual safety. 
if I'm serving God, if I'm doing stuff for him, then he and I are okay. And in fact, even if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, you might actually run a similar kind of equation. You might not think in terms of religious activity, but you might presume that if God does exist, then the kind of person he's most likely to be pleased with is the kind of person who's busy with virtuous looking stuff. But the fig tree shows us that appearances can be deceiving. Religious activity does not equal spiritual safety. And in fact, this scene in Mark's account introduces another equation. Religious activity minus submission to and love for King Jesus equals serious, serious danger. No amount of religious activity, no kind of spiritual activity can make up for a failure to bow the knee to and to love and to honour King Jesus. And actually, the fate that awaits anyone who rejects this Jesus, who tries to do religion without him, well, it's the same as the fig tree, stark as that is. It's withering judgment, eternal separation from the God who made us in a place the Bible calls hell. Now, I hope you can see that that is a really serious thing. It is a sobering thing, and I'm aware of that. But if you can see that, and if perhaps you're even burdened by it, well, what are you to do about it? Well, the story doesn't end there. Because immediately after the fig tree incident, there's a short exchange between Jesus and his disciples. And it might look a bit random when you first read it, but it is far from it, in fact. Let's look at that under our final heading this morning. Jesus, God's humble king, has come to do the impossible. Now, you might have come across verses 22 to 25 before. They're often taken out of context to support a particular understanding of, of, of prayer. For example, if you have just enough faith, then you can make amazing things happen. And conversely, if you pray about something and it doesn't happen, then it's only because you didn't have enough faith. But in one sense, the problem with that view is that these verses don't come out of nowhere in Mark's gospel. Jesus isn't delivering a block of teaching about the power of prayer. He's been talking about impending judgment on anyone who rejects him, even religious-looking people. And so notice the prompt for what Jesus says, what he says about prayer. It's Peter's pronouncement in verse 21. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And in response, Jesus says, verse 22, have faith in God. The two ideas are linked. God's power to answer prayer and the problem of God's judgment. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Because as we've seen in recent weeks in Mark's gospel, and as we've even seen this morning, well, it is impossible, humanly speaking, for anyone to enter God's kingdom. We just don't have the resources in and of ourselves to get there. And so what Jesus is teaching about in Mark 11 isn't just a prayer in a general sense. He's encouraging Peter to have faith in God because that is only the, the only way to be rescued from this withering judgment, to be part of his coming kingdom. 
with humble, dependent faith in God, it is possible for the impossible to happen. For mountains to be thrown into the sea, and for people such as you and I to be rescued. Now, where does that leave us at the end of this passage this morning? Well, a few years ago, I read a a book called Unbroken. Some of you might have have read it and might have seen the film um, that came out a number of years later. It's uh, called, uh, sorry, it's about a man called Louis Zamperini. Uh, It's a pretty amazing story, actually. He was an Olympic runner uh, before the Second World War, who then served in the armed forces before being captured and held as a Japanese prisoner of war during the Second World War. And he was treated dreadfully as a prisoner. Lots of it was, was quite harrowing to read. But in the, in the book, he describes the very end of the war, when victorious Allied forces arrived to liberate him and the other prisoners from the camp in which they were imprisoned. And the arrival of those forces was met with two very different responses. See, for the prisoners, the arrival of their allies was the arrival of their rescuers, And so their arrival was wonderful. They they, they danced and they sang and they hugged and they cried. It was reason for great joy. But you see, for those who had done the imprisoning, for the guards in the prison camps, the arrival of their victorious opponents was less good news. Because it signaled that they were about to be held to account for all that they'd done. And so their reaction wasn't one of rejoicing, Anything but. And the reason I mention that is that Mark 11, I think, pictures a similar arrival with two similar responses. Jesus will return one day. The Bible is very clear about that. And when he does, he won't come as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king. And he will hold all human rebellion against him, whether it looks religious or not, He will hold it to account. And the question I think Mark 11 would have us reckon with is how will you meet him? Will you meet him as your rescuing king? Or will you meet him as your judge? Now we might like to imagine that if we were to stand before him we could give quite a good account of ourselves. We could recount all of the good stuff we've done in our lives. It could point to the people that we live and work among who aren't half as kind or as generous as we are. And and, and for those of us who are Christians, we might run a similar idea in our mind's eyes. We might plan to point to our Christian service, the sacrifices we've made for Jesus, our commitment to his church, the money we've given for gospel work, the number of people we've told about Jesus. And none of those things, none of those behaviors are bad in and of themselves. Very far from it. They're good. But you see, they aren't good enough. Nowhere near good enough. We are unable to enter God's kingdom under our own steam. Even the most religious looking of activity won't be enough. And so the only thing we can do is humbly depend on him. Ask him for his grace. See, Jesus is God's king, and as sure as he arrived in Jerusalem all those years ago, he is coming back. So will you meet him as your rescuer, or will you meet him as your judge? If you will meet him as your rescuer, if you know that to be true of yourself this morning, then, well, you might well rejoice, 
like Louis Zamperini and his friends meeting their liberators and thank him and praise him that he would come to rescue you. But if instead you know right now that you would meet him as your judge, but you long instead to meet him as your rescuer, well, what matters is what you do with him now. Whether you bow before him and ask him, humbly ask him to do the impossible. Because listen, he died a criminal's death on a cross in order to make the impossible possible. To forgive our rebellion against him and to welcome such as us into his eternal kingdom if only we would trust in him. If you've never done that before, well, let me please encourage you this morning to do that today. Let me pray for us as we close. Our God and Father, we come before you and acknowledge that every one of us has gone astray. That each one of us have rejected you and made ourselves kings and queens over our own lives. And for that, we are deeply, deeply sorry. And as a result, we are owed nothing but your rejection, but being cut off from you. And yet instead, you sent a king, the Lord Jesus, to rescue, to die the death that we should have died, so that the impossible might be made possible. And so we praise you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness to us at the cross. And we ask that each of us would please have real confidence, certainty of the freedom that that does bring when we trust in you. And for any who have yet to trust in you, we ask, Lord, that you would please enable them to do so today. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.